You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. Do you enjoy white elephant gift exchanges? I do. Uh, most of the time there's something funny that happens with it. And uh, the goal of a white elephant exchange, in my opinion, my strategy is you try to find something that you can use and you go for that gift and you hope that you walk away with it rather than a random piece of junk from Goodwill that's going to go back to Goodwill. Well, this past December, uh, our Sunday school class did a white elephant gift exchange at our Christmas party. And the most coveted item that everyone seemed to want was a chicken. Not a rubber chicken, a literal frozen chicken. Thank you, Josh and Susan. Uh, it was stolen five or six times by various people, which leads to some funny moments. And uh, Kate happened to have one of the last numbers, so she stole it last and went home with it. And boy, howdy, was it delicious. Now, that is the definition of a great white elephant gift. Because not only could you use it, you could eat it. And it was incredibly delicious. If you have the best gift in a, in a white elephant gift exchange like that, do you want to swap with someone else? Well, of course not. Usually, and I could call people's names out on this one, usually you're hiding the gift, slipping it under your chair or behind your seat. I have very specific people in mind. You don't want to get rid of it. But if you don't have the best gift, if you open it up and you're like, ah, hmm, can't do anything with this. This is a random piece of junk from Goodwill. What is your actions every time someone else gets up to get the gift? Hey, you want this random thing? You know, like you're shaking it in front of them, putting it out there, trying to get them to, trying to tempt them to take what you have. A couple years ago, uh, we celebrated Christmas with Kate's family in Ohio. I think this was three years ago. And uh, we decided to do our first family white elephant gift exchange. She has seven siblings and there are a bunch of pluses, in-laws, et cetera. So there are about a dozen of us. And I got, I think, the second to last number, which I was really thrilled about. So I went up to the tree, and I picked a gift that looked promising. And as soon as I touched it, several people started laughing. And it was in that moment that you're like, hmm, I made a terrible mistake. But there's no going back. You're just stuck with it. And so I sat down and opened a homemade redneck starter pack homemade redneck starter pack. I guess there really is no other sort of redneck starter pack. And it included a Dale Earnhardt hat, a Dale Earnhardt t-shirt, gas station quality sunglasses, and a can of beer. And I was like, okay, what do I do with this? You know, the top of my head is turning beet red at that point. And everyone is thinking it's hilarious because the pastor has the redneck thing. I'm like, all right, well, I got no interest in NASCAR and I have no use for beer. And no one wanted to trade with me. They, were, they stuck me with it, so I left it to my in-laws rather than flying home with it. Well, if you have the best gift, you hold on to it. And if you have a subpar gift, you try to exchange it for something better, obviously. And in a white elephant gift exchange, what is best is determined by each person, right? It's determined by tastes or interests or uses or whatever flavor you're going through that, that Christmas season. But in the spiritual realm, something far more serious, something far more permanent. There's only one thing that's truly best for every person. What is best for every single human being 
is to have a saving relationship with their creator, Jesus Christ. Because human flourishing is possible only through Jesus. Now, I mentioned human flourishing a couple weeks ago. It's probably not a phrase you're using in conversation. But what is human flourishing? It's the state in which a person or a community gains satisfaction, grows into maturity, finds meaning and purpose, and lives with joy and hope and peace. Every person has an innate desire for flourishing. And the Bible explains why. Because the story of Scripture doesn't just tell us what we're supposed to do today. It tells us how we fit into everything around us. The Bible teaches us that God created us in his own image and set eternity in our hearts. We long for meaning and joy and peace and happiness and utopia because God intended for us to have these things. But we messed it up. Sin ruined what God had created. Instead of meaning, in this world there is vanity. Instead of joy, there's sadness. Instead of peace, there's unrest and anxiety. Instead of utopia, (laughs) the world is full of suffering. Our broken world needs a savior who can restore all things back to God's original intention and bring about human flourishing. Jesus is that savior. And through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, he redeemed the universe. Colossians 1 says that he reconciled all things back to God. And now, in the moment of time that we find ourselves in, we are waiting for his second coming where he will make all things new and usher in that moment of true, lasting, eternal peace that can never change. So how is human flourishing brought about? How can we gain these things? The Bible is very clear. It's possible only under one condition, when we are rightly related to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus brings satisfaction, spiritual fullness, meaning, joy, hope, and peace. And if you have Jesus, we've said this many times this year, you have found the ultimate treasure. You have found the only path to human flourishing. Why would you trade Jesus for something lesser? You have opened the best gift. Why get rid of it? Why seek joy in things that can't make you happy? Why seek satisfaction in something that can't fulfill your longings? C.S. Lewis wrote, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy... The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. That's exactly right. You and I were made for Christ, Colossians 1.16. And yet, if we're honest people, we, we're, not off, we're not satisfied with Jesus. Often we find pleasure and fulfillment in other things above him, And we think the grass is greener somewhere else. We believe the lies of our culture and we just assume that that the people on our screens are truly happy and we've got to have what they have and and that's money and power and fame. And, And yet if you were to look into their lives, you'd realize that they're looking for the same things that you're looking for. They don't have it. The truth is, human flourishing is possible only through Jesus Christ. And when you look to him, 
to quench the thirst of your heart. We just sang about this. Only Jesus can satisfy. When you look to him to quench the thirst of your heart, you can and will be fully satisfied in Christ alone. In our text today, Colossians 2, 8 through 10, lays out four reasons why spiritual flourishing is possible only through Jesus. And these four truths that we'll discover today challenge us, feed us even, in our thirst, in our quest to find satisfaction. They challenge us to find our satisfaction in Christ alone. And so the first reason is found in verse 8. Let's look at this verse again, Colossians 2, 8. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. The first reason that spiritual, why spiritual flourishing is only possible through Christ is because Jesus alone gives spiritual freedom. Now, we talked about this verse extensively a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to go line by line through it necessarily. Let's recap it. Paul begins with a firm warning. He says, beware. See to it. Watch out. What are we watching for? Be on your guard because there are people out there who will cheat you. And that word cheat you means to take you away captive, to plunder you. Well, what are, what's taking us captive? What's plundering us? And the verse says a philosophy, a system of beliefs that explain what the world is and how to live in it. And these teachings sound true, but they're, they're really empty and deceptive. And their authority is based in human tradition and human reason according to the basic principles of the world. The missing piece with all these things is that this philosophy is not according to Christ. It's not according to Jesus. Apart from Jesus, there is no flourishing and no freedom, only captivity. And if you've come to Christ later in life, you know that this is so true. Because all the things that you used to trust in to give you the meaning and the satisfaction, you realize those couldn't do anything for me. Apart from Jesus, there is no flourishing. Any worldview that is unhitched from Scripture and detached from Jesus will lead to bondage. Now, I want to take a few minutes and talk about secularism for a moment. Because secularism is rapidly becoming the default worldview for our culture. Secularism actually holds out a vision of human flourishing. It promises fulfillment and freedom, but it does so apart from Christ. Well, how so? Think with me here for a few minutes. Flourishing requires meaning and purpose. Well, secularism says that, that things are material only. It's materialistic. Meaning and purpose in life are discovered in material or physical things. So the notion of a higher power, the notion of religion that has transcendent truth, that's rejected. And authority is replaced by individual authority. Well, flourishing second wants a harmonious society. The secular vision of society is like a utopia on earth where everyone tolerates, respects, and affirms one another's personal choices. They believe that history is on an upward march of progress toward this end. And secular people begin with the premise that we are all naturally good. There's, a good, there's just goodness in our hearts. And all we need to do is draw that out. So to find fulfillment and live in harmony with one another, what do we need to do? We need to create a right environment. 
and social structures that, that make everybody equal. The right environment draws out the goodness within. The right education teaches people how to be fulfilled. That's why so much money is poured into social programs. That's why rehabilitation is preferred over policing. People are good and they just need a little bit more education in a different environment and they can be a productive member of society. They certainly aren't sinners in need of salvation. Well, third, flourishing looks for fulfillment and satisfaction. And the path to fulfillment, according to the secular worldview, is achieved through personal autonomy. Being true to myself, following my desires. Tolerance then becomes a virtue. And the idea of a God in heaven telling us what we can and cannot do is offensive. And not only must you agree with me, you must affirm me. And for you to have a different opinion that contradicts who I am is anathema. Flourishing also seeks joy and hope and peace. And if personal autonomy is the way to fulfillment, then for me to be happy, I have to live true to myself. I have to do me. I must have personal freedom to practice whatever is best for me without anyone else, especially religion, interfering. Now, the irony in all this is that secular people say that religious freedom is a, is a hallmark of their worldview. But religious freedom is redefined. It's celebrated as long as the religion you practice doesn't infringe on me, doesn't make any claim of authority or judgment. Oppressive religion are those that hold the truths. Oppressive religion can't be tolerated. It has to be thrown out of the public square because one group views one group's views can't affect everybody else. That would be infringing on my personal autonomy. And so the separation of church and state becomes just the, one of the, the biggest dreams and goals of this movement. And here's another way that personal autonomy shows up in, in, in politics and in choices. If personal autonomy leads to flourishing, they would say that I have to have total control over my body. This is a pro-choice argument. We believe, and the scriptures clearly teach, that abortion is, is murder, the taking of an unborn human life. Secular people see abortion as the liberation of a woman's body to be equally unpregnant as a man. Therefore, to them, abortion allows a woman to be autonomous and to flourish because she can choose what she wants to do with her body and have the freedom to be who she feels like she needs to be. To have the liberty to be sexually active without the consequences, quote unquote, of a child. Secularism promises flourishing, but only delivers death and captivity. It kills the unborn. That's not flourishing. It enslaves millions of people in social systems that incentivize keeping people dependent on the government. No amount of societal reform can change people's hearts. Even if they could get to utopia, which they can't, it will be corrupted from within because of the sinful nature of the human heart. Material things can't provide purpose. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. Solomon already tried all that 3,000 years ago. The physical world was not designed to bear the weight of eternal meaning. Joy and peace and hope are not found in personal autonomy. 
Humans were not created to be autonomous. And attempting to live in control of my own life doesn't lead to flourishing. It leads to anxiety and despair and hopelessness because you can't control life. Where is true freedom and true flourishing found? It's in Christ and in Christ alone. John 8 says this. Jesus says to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And, if, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Notice, notice how the biblical worldview contrasts secularism and actually delivers freedom. Let's walk back through these same points that we just hit on. Flourishing requires meaning and purpose. Well, the Bible teaches us that we are created by Christ for Christ. By living to bring him glory, we fulfill our created purpose. Second, flourishing looks for fulfillment and satisfaction, and it's not found in what we want or in being who we are and true to ourselves. It's actually by finding delight in God. We are most satisfied when we are glorifying God and living according to our designed purpose. Flourishing, third, also seeks joy and hope and peace. And the Bible shows us that a relationship to Christ sustains us through the brokenness of the world. How else can we have peace and joy and hope when life is falling apart around us if we don't have a relationship to Jesus? And fourth, flourishing wants a harmonious society, and that, that's the destiny of every person that believes in Christ. For those who have received Christ by faith, someday they will, they will find and follow Jesus forever. Jesus will return and create a new heaven and new earth where sin is banished and death is swallowed up in victory. And then, and only then, will paradise be found. That's the flourishing that the Bible promises. And the good news is the story of the gospel, that you can embrace Christ and become part of the redemption story. You don't have to follow the logic of our world and find that the secular promise is actually death and it's actually destruction. You can be free through Christ. If you've never accepted Christ by faith, the Bible teaches us very clearly that you're a spiritual captive. You may not feel like it, but you're enslaved. Where is that liberation found? It's found through the freedom of, of Christ. You need a deliverer. You need someone to set you free, to pay the penalty of your sin. Jesus did all that. He is your substitute. He lived perfectly on earth for you. He died in your place. He rose again. He took your sentence of guilt so that you could be pardoned. And the apostles preached in Acts 2 and Acts 4 and Acts 10 that, that now he sits in heaven and he doesn't just sit up there saying, hey, if anyone wants to follow me, that'd be a, probably a pretty good idea. But, you, you know, it's your call. The Bible says that he commands everyone, everywhere, that they must repent and be born again. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved other than Jesus Christ. And so, my friend, if you are without Christ today, it's not an accident that you showed up here. It's not an accident that you found us or have been attending or a friend invited you. Come to Christ by faith. Stop trying to pay for your sins yourself 
and receive Jesus' work on the cross for you. The key difference here between the secular worldview and the biblical worldview is Jesus. That's the key difference. Because the world is just as broken and we're just as frail. But the secular worldview has no answer for that. They have some answers they think will work, but we have Christ. We have the greatest treasure the world can offer because Jesus alone gives spiritual freedom. Well, verse 9 contains a second reason that human flourishing is possible only through Christ. It's because Jesus alone is the fullness of God. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, if you're reading this verse kind of in the in the flow of the context, it doesn't seem quite to make sense. At face value, there's a simple claim here, right? That Jesus, the man, is also fully God. So Jesus alone is the fullness of God. And this affirms, I'll come back to that main slide in a minute, this affirms the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. One person with two natures. Jesus was fully a human being and he is also fully God. Well, how does that work? The word dwelled in verse 19 refers to making a home or living in a place. The fullness of deity made its home in a man. Jesus didn't just have part of God resting on him or became God over time. He is God. And we saw this truth back in chapter 1, verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. The word fullness and the word dwell are, both replete, are, are repeated in both places. So, so why does Paul revisit the truth about Jesus' deity here in chapter 2? And I think it's for this reason. The doctrine of Jesus' full deity is the basis of our flourishing. If Jesus isn't God, then he can't do what's required to bring about human flourishing. He can't rescue us from our sins. He can't make all things new. He can't deliver on his promises. He can't do any of that. But because he is God, all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Jesus represents us to God as our older brother and as God, his atoning sacrifice pays the eternal debt we owe, and eternally reconciles us back to God. And that leads to a huge implication. If Jesus is the fullness of deity in a body, in bodily form, then is there anywhere else we can turn for spiritual fulfillment? Is there anyone greater than God? Christ is sufficient. And we'll, we'll revisit this idea in verse 10, but I want to I want to stop on this word sufficient for a moment. I want to park here. The word sufficient means that something is enough for you to meet the needs of a situation. Several years ago when Kate and I were first married, we were living in Greenville, South Carolina. My uncle came through and he was traveling on business and he insisted on taking us out to dinner. And I was like, sure, twist my arm. (laughs) Okay, sure, we'll go with you. And we went out to eat and we sit down And before we can even say anything, he said, all right, we're Sparkmans. We eat a lot. And I'm kind of like, I've never heard that before. But uh, I'm not arguing with you. Sure, we can eat a lot. But what does that mean? And my uncle says, so what we're going to do, since we're Sparkmans, we eat a lot. So we're going to get three appetizers. Then you're going to get whatever you want for for food. Then we're going to get a couple desserts. 
And we're not going to weasel our way out of it. We're going to do this. And my brother and I are kind of like, this is heaven. (laughs) Kate's thinking that this is some family tradition. She asked me later, I'm like, I'd never heard that before either. So the food just kept coming and coming and coming. And whatever we wanted on that menu, we could get. His provision for us was certainly sufficient. It was more than enough to fill us up. 2 Peter 1.3 says this, God's divine power has given to us all things, how many things? All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. There is nothing you need for life or godliness that God hasn't provided through Christ. There's nothing you need spiritually that Jesus cannot give you. You can flourish right now where he has placed you because he is more than enough for you. Well, how does this happen? How, how is Jesus more than enough? How does that work? Well, back on that, at that dinner, for Kate and I and my brother to be satisfied, we had to actually eat the food. <laughs> how silly would it have been for us to, to be you know, critics and talk about all the exquisite things on the menu and, and describe what it might taste like and then walk out without ever having tasted a bite of food. That'd be beyond foolish. What's the way spiritually that we enjoy God's sufficiency? We have to receive it. We have to taste it. Romans 15, 13 says this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how are we satisfied by God's provisions? What does the verse say? In believing. For you to find the truth to be sufficient, you must believe it. It's no good to look at the menu of Scripture and acknowledge how good it is and affirm its truthfulness and never taste it yourself. Believe it. Believe that God's character will strengthen you. Taste and see that he is good even in pain. Submit to his sovereignty and accept his will. Depend on his wisdom and lean not under your own understanding. Bow in awe at his majesty and know that he is God. Revel in his love and remember that Jesus is strong and kind. Believe that God's promises will sustain you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will give you the wisdom you need when you ask. He will be faithful to help you in temptation. He will give peace to you when you pray. He will be an anchor for your soul. Believe that God's grace will empower you to meet every need. For Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Christ is sufficient. And he alone provides every resource you need for spiritual freedom. So number two, I guess I never put it back up on the screen. Number two, Jesus alone is the fullness of God. The third principle, number three, Jesus alone is the head of all spiritual powers. This is found in the last phrase of verse 10. And we'll come back to the first half. And you are complete in him. Here it is. Who is the head 
of all principality and power. Jesus is the head of all spiritual powers. That's why human flourishing is possible only through him. Now this phrase, the head of all spiritual powers, shows up in a couple of other places in the letter. And this is really interesting. Uh, the word head is not a new metaphor. It appeared in 118, chapter 1, verse 18. But there's a big difference in these uses, though. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says that Christ is the head of the body, which is the church. Jesus is the one having authority over the church and supplying it with growth. But here, he is the head of all principalities and powers. And the implication is that these are hostile forces. He is in charge and authoritative over these things because he has conquered them. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 15, you'll see the same words, principalities and powers. And what did Jesus do to these things? He disarmed them. He conquered them on the cross. And we'll unpack this verse in the near future. The key thing for us today is this. If Jesus has conquered these spiritual beings, then is there anything else that has greater power? No. Jesus is supreme. There is no one greater or more powerful to rely on for flourishing. Verse 18 of chapter 2 says that worship of angels was part of this heresy. But if Jesus is supreme over all of these powers, then why would you worship something lesser and ignore the greater? There's a common illustration, I think, that pictures this. I remember going out to eat as a child. I don't know why all my illustrations today are about food. But I went out to eat with, a, with my family and my grandparents, and the service we received that night at that restaurant was awful. Uh, my grandmother's food didn't come till all of us were done eating. That was just one instance. And so what did my grandpa do about that? He talked to the manager. He asked to speak to the manager. And normally when you do that, you're appealing to a higher authority, a higher power to correct something that was wrong. Well, if Jesus is the supreme head over all powers, then there's no one greater to appeal to, no one greater to rely on for flourishing. The end of Colossians 2 picks up this idea. Paul's conclusion about these other philosophies in verse 23 is that they have an appearance of godliness and an appearance of being able to stop the flesh because of their asceticism and practices, but they are of no value. There's no power in them to actually stop the indulgence of the flesh. Human flourishing includes being liberated from the power of sin so that you can live in a way that pleases God. And nothing other than the power of God can do this. Yet many Christians ignorantly rely on other things to change them. What we lean into, what we depend on, is what we believe has the power to change us. Many Christians believe that simply by trying harder, they'll stop sinning. That doesn't last too long. More effort is simply self-reliance. And even if you succeed in that one area, you'll eventually fall off the road on, on the side of pride or discouragement. 
other Christians trust in routines and habits and regimen to produce Christ-likeness. Through greater self-discipline, they believe that they will be more godly. And self-discipline certainly changes us. There's no denying that. But that change is not into Christ's image. Some Christians believe that following rules and holding fast to standards is the way to grow up spiritually. Well, trusting in regulations to change you is is legalism. It doesn't lead to flourishing, but to slavery. Other Christians take a totally different approach altogether. They focus on mindfulness and positive thinking, and maybe they, they do yoga or they go to therapy or they channel positive thoughts because that sounds really positive. It sounds really good. And yes, the, the scriptures talk about biblical meditation. But ultimately, though these things may give a semblance of peace, they can never actually stop sin and promote holiness. They can't. Jesus is both sufficient and supreme. And when you lean on him, there is nothing you lack. And that's exactly the, the point Paul makes at the beginning of verse 10. And this wraps it all together. The final reason that spiritual flourishing is possible only through Christ is because you are complete in him. Verse 10, and you are complete in him. It's like I took it right from the verse. You are complete in him. The word complete is the same word as fullness in verse 9. So look at your Bibles because it's not up on the screen. You see in verse 9, in him dwells all the fullness of That word fullness is the same word as you are complete in him in verse 10. If you mark in your Bible, maybe you want to circle both and draw an arrow. And what Paul is doing is he's using a a turn of phrase to capture this incredible reality. The ESV actually brings this out. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. This truth pulls everything together. With Jesus, we have every piece needed for flourishing because we are complete in him. You know, in our household, we have three little boys, and, and there are a lot of Legos, and there are a lot of puzzle pieces, and they, they are often not in the places that they're supposed to be, which may or may not drive us nuts. And when you're working on a puzzle, or you're trying to build a Lego set, and you get close to the end, and you've got like 47 pieces, and there's a hole in the middle of it, that's very unsatisfying. Or when you're looking through the Lego bins for an hour and you still can't find that one piece only for the two-year-old to walk in with it and you're like, oh, I just wasted an hour of my life. <laughs> if, there's a sense of incompleteness and frustration there. And yet when a broken sinner comes to faith in Jesus, he or she becomes complete. They're restored healed, made whole. And this passage emphasizes two applications of this glorious truth that you're complete. If you are complete, that means you're filled and you lack nothing. By yourself, you're empty. Coming to Jesus means you're filled up. I picture a cup and you pour water in it. It's filled up. And this points to the doctrine of Christ's sufficiency, which we've touched on already. Jesus provides you with everything you need to have spiritual success. But I'd like, to, I'd like for us to consider Christ's sufficiency from another angle. If you are filled in Christ, then you don't need to look to anything else 
to satisfy you, right? This especially revolutionizes the way that we view and battle temptation. When Kate and I went out to eat with my uncle and my brother, we all ate what we wanted and then some. And we walked out of that restaurant and drove back home. And you know what? We passed on the side of the road in that 15-minute drive more restaurants and coffee shops and even ice cream places. And you know what appeal that all had on me? <laughs> None. I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine eating anything else. I was so full that nothing else appealed to me. You see the connection? The way to defeat temptation is to be so satisfied in Jesus that sin doesn't even appeal to you. You don't even want it. You're so full of Christ. There's no desire for anything else. You're so satiated by Jesus that you aren't tempted to abandon him. And I think we often have the wrong view of temptation. We look at temptation like a dog being told to sit while the bone is on its, its nose and it's holding back everything it can and it's drooling and it's, it just wants it so bad and at a flinch, it's gonna leap and grab that thing. That's, that's all wrong. Temptation to sin is a cotton candy substitute for Thanksgiving dinner. What's really going on in temptation is that God is saying, ignore the cotton candy on the ground and enjoy the feast at the table with my son. God isn't holding out on you by telling you to resist sin. He's actually offering something infinitely better. Temptation is a battle of satisfaction. Are you looking to sin to satisfy or to the sun? Would you rather have momentary fleeting pleasure or, or lasting fulfilling sustenance? That's what temptation is. Victory over sin is a battle of faith. Realizing and believing and finding that Jesus is more satisfying than our sin. And until you believe this, until you believe that having Christ is worth everything in the world, more than the experiences you can have and all the temptations you can indulge in, if you believe that, then you don't need anything else because Jesus is sufficient. What can that temptation offer you that you can't find perfectly in Christ? Your eye doesn't need to wander to anything else. You have the best. But not only are you filled, lacking nothing in Christ, you are also victorious, triumphant in Christ. If Jesus is the head of all powers, and if he has won the battle against sin and death and the devil, then why go somewhere else? Why join the losing side when you're on the winning side? The application to us then is transformative. Again, instead of viewing life as the struggle to survive, we have to remember that we are triumphant. We actually sang it in the last verse. We are conquerors, Romans eight thirty seven. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Our savior is the conquering king and the battle is already won. And as part of his army, we may have to walk through lonely roads on the way back home. But who are we? 
We're citizens of heaven at an outpost here on earth, already having won. We're conquerors. So what can defeat you if you are united to Jesus? What can defeat you? Can indwelling sin, besetting sin defeat you? No, because you're a conqueror through Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Can chronic pain and affliction defeat you? No, you're a conqueror through Christ. The present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us. Can a financial setback or financial ruin defeat you? No, you are a conqueror through Christ. In fact, we give up all things and count all of them but loss so that we may gain Christ. Can despair or mental illness defeat you? No, you are a conqueror through Christ. Though we may be beaten down, we are not knocked out, perplexed, but not given to despair. Can persecution defeat you? No, you're a conqueror of Christ. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you for my name's sake, for great is your reward in heaven. Can death to you or a loved one defeat you? No, you're a conqueror through Christ. Jesus is victorious. He reigns as king. You are complete in him, triumphant through his conquest. So I hope that you see now beyond a shadow of a doubt why flourishing is possible only through Christ. And I hope that you have a greater desire to be satisfied in him and satisfied by him alone. Thomas Boston, one of the the last Puritans, had it right when he wrote this. Christ, with anything, would have satisfied me. Nothing without Christ would do it. I hope that's your heart. That you give up all the world, and if you have Christ, you have all that you need. Because in him, you are triumphant, and he is sufficient for every need. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And for the truth of this passage that just, it makes, it, it makes our sin so foolish. It makes our desire and lust for other things just so petty and so even treacherous that we would give up holding to the Savior, give up holding to the one who died for us and rose again. We would give up the winning side to go back to the losers. And yet, we do that, we confess, so often. Forgive us, we pray. May we arm ourselves with the right thinking. May we walk by the Spirit to not fulfill the desires of the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.